Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Hey, welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where strategic planning is like the final round of a festive scavenger hunt. Exciting, competitive, and full of surprises. I'm your host, Jeff Maines, out B2B SaaS founders like you. Scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight figures and a premium exit, which is pretty freaking awesome. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft a business you're proud of and a life of impact and freedom that you love. Well, I hope you enjoyed a great Thanksgiving holiday and deepened some relationships. We're definitely in the home stretch of the year, December, the final act of this year's grand performance. And every leader I know has been working hard, driving, selling, building, just grinding. And now at the end of the year is inside. I'll bet some of you are thinking about how you can make a big final push. And others are like, yeah, you know, it's finally here and what's done is done. We can just coast into the holidays, get ready and be ready for January. And I used to bounce between those two until one of my mentors showed me something that completely changed my business. And it was one of the key things that allowed me to go from eight to nine figures for the first time and crack that big $100 million mark for the first time. I'll pass that on here and even walk you through step by step what that looks like. It's really easy to grind away and miss out on all the holidays had to offer, especially connection and family time. And it's also easy to get lost in the holiday sparkle and coast along. You know, nothing happens in December, right? Well, of course it does. But remember this, you know, what you do now sets the stage for your Q1. Next year doesn't start in January, it starts now. It's kind of weird to say that, but it's true. And a time when smart moves can really give you a giant head start while others are you know, coming back from the first of the year kind of nursing their hangovers. Now I look at December like it's the last few miles of a marathon. I mean, you're tired, yes, but this is where the race is won, where the leaders break away from the pack. It's not about sprinting, it's about steady strategic strides. Every effort, every plan you put into motion now is an investment into next year's triumphs. That doesn't mean we're gonna join time off with family and friends, we definitely are gonna do that. We'll do both in a really smart way. And here's the game plan. Number one, we want to maintain momentum. So while others seem to slow down, keeping your pace steady ensures that you hit the ground running in January. It's not a sprint. Think of it as keeping a steady rhythm, just ensuring that you're not starting from zero when the new year rings in. Use this time to strategically set up huge wins in Q1 and well beyond, because what you do now will do that for you. Two, cultivate connections. The holidays offer a unique opportunity to strengthen relationships in a more relaxed and personal setting. So reach out, spread some cheer, let your clients and prospects know that they're more than a number. It's these personal touches that often lead to fruitful collaborations and deals in the new year. And it's even better to do this all the time, but start now. And number three is strategic reflection and planning. Utilize this time to reflect back and plan forward. Analyze the year's past successes and shortcomings. Lay down a tactical blueprint for the upcoming year so that when the holiday dust settles, you're already a step ahead. Most competitors will just start this maybe mid-January, so plan now and be ready to execute day one. And the best part is because you've diligently laid your groundwork, you can truly enjoy holiday downtime, knowing that you set the wheels in motion for a successful new year. So let's make December count, not just as an end, but as a powerful launch pad into a triumphant new year. Our expert guest last week was John Barrows, the driving force behind JB Sales. He brought real-time expertise of SaaS sales, not just teaching, but actively selling, personally prospecting, and managing deals all in this environment. So if you need a sales boost, this is the ticket. And our founder last week was Adam White, who has built and sold over 20 internet and SaaS businesses. We talked about building companies that others see as valuable. So if you missed either of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is Andrew Swiler, CEO of Lantaria and strategic maestro in the HR tech world. Andrew is transforming HRMS with his visionary leadership and innovating employee engagement solutions. He's an operational whiz and trendsetter propelling Lantaria to the forefront of HR tech with his knack for smart investments and game-changing strategies. 
Welcome, Andrew Swiler. Hey, Andrew, welcome to SAS Fuel. Thank you, Jeff. It's awesome to be here. I'm really excited to meet you and really excited to talk to you today. Well, really excited about talking with you as well. You've got a really unique background. And you started in, in private equity, the, the dark side, and then moved over and became a founder. And you know, here we are today. I'd love to hear about that journey and uh, and what you're doing today with Lentaria. So, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. Like, I think even my so my great I don't know how many generations back, but my family came over from Lithuania, and my great great grandfather ended up stopping in this like lumber town in uh, in Wisconsin and opening like a general store. And that general store turned into a clothing store. And even my grandfather still ran that clothing store until wow. I was a little kid. And then my dad like owned retail stores and had, you know, had his own company. Um, he never liked employees. My dad basically never had employees, but he was an entrepreneur uh, his whole life, built a lot of different companies. So I had that experience in me. But, um, you know, when I went to college, my dad was like, go get a finance degree and then you don't have to be an entrepreneur and you can make good money and not have to do all this dumb stuff that I did most of my life. And I was like, all right. So I did that. Uh, I went into private equity after college. We, we worked in more like distressed private equity. So we'd buy companies out of bankruptcy, um, okay. restructure them. And and like our most famous deal was probably like Polaroid. Like we bought Polaroid, the brand, and restructured that. So I, I got super burned out after like five years. Um, and decided to just go travel. Told my boss one day, like, I'm going to go travel and write. That's what I told him. I was going to write in Europe for a while. And he was like, oh my God, like, you got to get out of here. <laughs> You're totally burned out. <laughs> so I ended up meeting my wife, my now wife, uh, on a kayaking trip in Croatia. And cool. we traveled together for about a month. And I convinced her after that to move to San Francisco. I knew I didn't want to go back to private equity. I knew that chapter of my life was done. But I wanted to get into tech. I was, you know, it was like Airbnb was getting started. I was using Airbnb, Facebook, like all this excitement was going on. And I was like, let's go out to San Francisco. So we moved out there for two years. I worked as like a fractional CFO for a couple of small SaaS companies to help them help them raise money, basically. And one day my wife said to me, I don't like living here. And I'm going to move back to Barcelona, where she's from. And you can come with or you can stay here. And we now live in Barcelona 10 years later, uh, but we, when we moved here, yeah, I didn't speak the language. I didn't know what to do. And my wife was actually starting an e-commerce company, a, uh, an eyewear company. And she asked me, like, I don't know how to raise money and we need money. So I ended up stepping in. I said, I'll help you raise money and kind of set up some structures. And uh, it was going to be like a three or four month project. And six years later, we ended up selling the company. Um, to after we'd grown, like we grew franchises and we kind of grew to relatively large, uh, sold the company and, you know, the pandemic hit right afterwards. And I was like, well, what am I going to do now? Like, what do I want to do? I, I worked a little bit for a venture capital firm, worked a little bit for a family office, but I knew about this thing called search funds where basically like an entrepreneur kind of goes out and acquires uh, a company. I didn't like search funds personally because I thought they didn't have enough risk in them. Like as an entrepreneur, I think too often it's like, well, pay me $200,000 to go look for a business. Like, well, just go do it. You don't need to get paid to do that. Right. It's, it's a fun activity. So I spent probably a year and a half just reading things called confidential information, information memorandums. So like when a company's for sale, they send you like this document that tells you all about the company. Right. I read probably 2,000 of these things from e-commerce companies to SaaS companies to HVAC companies, everything. Um, and just kind of learned about like the industry, like deal terms, how to how to structure a deal. So when Lanteria came around, uh, the two previous owners were, um, they're from Ukraine. They were entrepreneurs from Ukraine. And obviously, the Ukrainian war was a difficult situation. They needed right. to sell the company. And... I saw just an outlier situation. I said, this is a company that we can get debt for. It was profitable. This was an easy company to pitch investors on because I'm in Barcelona, like prior to the pandemic, if I called an investor, they would be like, why would I even talk to you? Like, what, what are you doing in Barcelona? Why don't you move to San Francisco? What's going on? And after the pandemic, it was just like you and me. It was like two guys on a screen talking to yeah. each other. They didn't care where I was or what I was doing. Uh, so it, you know, the pandemic totally changed everything for me, like my trajectory, my ability to raise money, to do things that were different. And we acquired the company. It was 
frankly, it was pretty easy to get the the debt financing was tough. We had to convince a bank to give us a million dollars. Uh, and then we had to convince some investors. But the investors, like the guys from Tiny Seed Capital that end up investing in us, uh, I talked to them for maybe 20 minutes on the phone. The pitch was maybe 20 minutes. And they said, I get it. Send over the due diligence package, but count, count us in. And yeah, we were off to the races and it, it's, it's been exciting. It's, it's not easy. I mean, we still have a lot of people in Ukraine, a lot of difficult situations. You got to pay debt. It's, it's tough. That is a, a fascinating story. Is all the, <laughs> the twists and turns. I mean, that, that's what entrepreneurship is. I think a lot of times yeah. is just all the, the twists and turns and, and it's an adventure. Yeah. It's, I, I always say to people, uh, I actually made a, a video of this today that, there's really like two things that could make you an that I think an entrepreneur needs. Like there's two skill sets. Like obviously there's certain market things, but the the resilience, just like that you can put up with a lot of crap and just keep kind of plowing through it and being like, okay, I made a mistake here. I'm going to keep going. Somebody doesn't like this. I don't care. I'm going to keep going. And just curiosity, like to say like, I, now I work in HR. I don't know anything about HR. I've never worked for a large company. I've never had an HR department even talk to me outside of... I got into HR, I knew this was a good business, and I just decided I'm gonna call our clients and I'm gonna talk to them. And I started a podcast too with uh, potential clients where I would just say like, hey, come on my podcast and explain like, what do you do? What's important to you? What are you yeah. good at? And for me, like, I just like it. I like hearing about it. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Like you meet interesting people that do interesting things. And if you're curious, you can become an entrepreneur. Yes, yes. Well, I think it's fascinating that, that you looked at, at so many different companies. I mean, 2,000 confidential memorandums and, and you know, looking at the different companies to identify the, the one opportunity. And you know, I, I think you know, having that experience in the past certainly served you well. What is it that is an important quality or skill? Or you know, as you're looking at companies, how do you know what to choose? You know, what is it that, that you're finding? If somebody's out there looking at deals, what is it that is going to make that a successful venture? So, I mean, the difference between like starting from zero, I mean, starting from zero, you want to know that you have like a specific skill set or a specific understanding of a market. You want to make sure that there's this big market in front of you. Um, when you're looking at an acquisition, I mean, a lot of times what you're looking at also is what's the downside risk here? Because, you know, you're in an outlay, sure. you know, a million, two million, three million bucks. Uh, you want to know what's the downside risk here. And typically, in acquisitions, you know, the downside is, is limited and the upside is a little bit more limited as well. I mean, you're not talking about these like 100x situations. You're looking for, you know, the five, six, seven x uh, exit is, is a good exit in private sure. equity. Sure. So you're you're already from like a venture capital perspective, you're kind of in a different ball game of, you know, risk return and, and what you're trying to do. I mean, in venture capital, just all risk. It's like, right. it's, <laughs> you know, three guys or two guys, and we're just going to throw some money at them and hope see what kind of comes out of it. Um, in this case, you know, you're you're looking at it from a different perspective, especially like what's the multiplier? Can if we you know execute well, can we expand the multiple? So you know, if I acquire it at two x revenue, if I grow it at this, am I going to be able to get out at four x, five x, six x, ten x revenue? Because that's where like the real unlock can happen is is sort of yes. getting that multiple expansion that people want to get to. And then the other key parts is, you know, you're looking at financials. Obviously, it's nice that you have historicals on a lot of these companies. So you can see sort of you can look at cohorts. You can look at churn. Um, I actually the one strange thing that I do uh, compared to other people I've talked to, like you can read a bunch of websites and read sort of like the basics and blocking and tackling. I would say the one insight I would give people is go on G2, go on open uh, on, on you know, Glassdoor. Look at these places where people are reviewing the employees, the customers. What is this company about? Because you also need to know, like, what are you getting into? If you're getting into a company that's just like a rocket ship, the, the company's growing and everything's kind of a well-oiled machine, you're going to pay a premium for that. But sometimes you'll see companies where they're growing, like the revenue's growing, the cohorts are growing, but behind the scenes, it's just a dumpster fire. The, the employees aren't happy. Everyone wants to leave. The customers want to churn. They're just on like an annual uh, annual thing or something just changed in the product and they don't like it. And if you go and read reviews, especially like recent ones, you can see what's the journey that this company's on. And then you'll know, you know, am I getting on this rocket ship or am I taking a potential, you know, 
fixer upper or, or a turnaround, which is kind of what, what we look for. Um, and I think that's like one of the few areas that, you know, beyond just the financial numbers and sort of the, the top line and bottom line that you can see some hints as to like how the company works, how the employees look at it, how the customers look at it. Cause that's the foundation of what you're buying usually in these yeah. companies. That makes a lot of sense and really, really understanding and seeing the trend. Because you could see reviews from two years ago, maybe they're great, and they just start trending downward or maybe upward, or there were there were issues that were solved. Yeah, and that might be why they're selling. Yeah, sometimes they're selling for that reason. <laughs> they <they've, laughs> they did something wrong. They know it, and I, I mean, even with with Lanteria, when we first looked at, it, I mean, I looked at it uh, a year before we had bought it. They had really good numbers from 2020, but they had like a spike from a couple big customers that did some big, um, some big contracts with them. And those went away and you could see it going away. And when they came back to us a year later, we were like, well, you know, we're not going to buy it for what you wanted it for 12 months ago. Like we're going to buy right. it for what it is now. And that's the typical thing. I mean, in SaaS, like as the, if the revenue is going up, the enterprise value is going up, but once the revenue goes flat, the enterprise value just collapses underneath. Yeah. Yeah, I think you brought up a really good point, too, and really looking at, at multiples. I mean, so often I think entrepreneurs are really looking at that top line number and it's all about growing revenue and they forget or maybe don't know that uh, the other way to really increase that is the multiple. Yeah, those change. And, and there are things that you can do to affect the multiple both ways. Yeah, you know, it could be customer concentration. It could be you're really involved in the business. It could be. I mean, there's so many different factors and how does that play into, you know, when you're looking at acquiring a company or, or looking to go to market, how do you think about that? So I was actually, I mean, if you want the best multiple, I was with one of my friends the other day, he sold his company uh, a couple of, no, he sold his company last year and he got a great multiple. He, I don't know the number. I just know it was, it was a good exit. And he was like, the key to my success in this acquisition is I did not care. Like I did not care if they bought the company. I didn't care if I kept running the company. He's like, the company was running well. I had built a system where he was like, I was skiing already more than I was working. And he was like, I had built a system. He's like, I built a machine and the machine worked and I wasn't involved. And the rest of my team was motivated. They had you know skin in the game and they were working well. And so when they came to us for this acquisition, he was like, they would send me like due diligence, like questionless. And he's like, I would just hit no and drag it to the bottom on the Excel. And I would send it back to him. I go, and I'd say, if you want to buy the company, buy the company, but I'm not answering this crap. Like, I don't want to deal with it. And so <laughs> that that is true. Like, if you don't care, if it's like, hey, company's running well, I'm, I don't care if I sell it. I don't care if I, if, if you buy it or not, that's when the biggest multiple expansion, because then it's like, you know, you just name your price. And it's like, if they want it, they get it. If not, right. you just don't want to be a forced seller. So when I'm buying, I mean, I, I look at kind of special situations. I don't want to buy the 10x, uh, 10x multiple ARRs growing super fast. For me, it's just not a market that I understand very well. It's not something that uh, myself or you know the investors I know have an appetite in for where we're at. Um, I prefer special situations, companies that need to be turned around. Companies, I mean, what I'm actively looking looking at right now are companies that over-raised, over-capitalized themselves, yeah. put themselves in a position where the founders maybe have, you know, some big liquidation preferences for the, the VCs. The VCs are looking at this like, I don't even want to be, why am I at this board meeting? I don't care. This company's not going anywhere. It's just a spec in inside of our, our portfolio. And the founders like, I can't get anything out of this. Like, even if we sold for 10X, what we're what we're doing right now, I would get zero. And those are the kinds of situations that we're looking at to step into to, you know, find a way to get everyone sort of the exit that cleans everything up. You get rid of that extra froth that's been built on top that, you know, a lot of times the KPIs you need to hit is like how many account executives did you hire this quarter? And that's just a horrible KPI. <laughs> like that's not <laughs> that's not like a good business KPI. That's just a KPI that says, hey, if we hire this many in theory, then we're going to grow X amount right. over the next two years, but it doesn't always work out that way. And what doesn't work out, then it's hard to cut back. Then there's cash issues, but sometimes there's good underlying businesses here. There are businesses with good customer reviews. The customers like it. The customers are staying on and there's unit economics that could work 
if you step in and structure the business in the right way. So I look yeah. at things like that where, you know, you might be able to find pe the incentives are aligned where everyone just wants to get out and dump this off to someone else that's willing to operate in a different way because I don't want to have a hundred account executives. I want to have five and right. have them be running at, you know, optimal speed. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that we look for. I, I've, I know people that do these sort of like big, you know, high growth, but I think a lot of times those go to more strategic buyers. Um, I don't think sure. they go to sort of financial investors like us. Uh, and, and I respect it. I mean, I, I have a good friend that sold his business uh, in a, another good friend that sold his business to a, a, a strategic and did fantastic. And the negotiation was very easy because they were growing like crazy and the, it was the perfect sort of strategic fit. Yeah. Yeah. Really looking for the, the strategic fit. That's where magic happens. And it, it's, there are a lot of companies out there and I think it's kind of sad, just the, the VC model and, and taking the, the projections and the high growth and, and, you know, forecasting that to infinity and then it doesn't happen. And now yeah. you have a business that could have been really, really good and is, is struggling because the, the projections were so ridiculous. I think a lot of that happened, you know, 2020, 21. Yeah. And, and maybe yeah. things are coming back down to earth, but how does that affect raising? You know, capital raise, is that something that you've seen as a challenge, whether it's, it's in buying companies or they're selling because they can't raise? So the, on the selling side, I mean, what, what I've noticed at least is most venture capital firms are not willing to write these things down to the level that they're at. Uh, I don't know what the reasoning is, but there, there seems to be very little incentive for these, these, these people to write this off and just say like, Hey, let's get rid of this. Let's get it off our books. Uh, let's get it off the reporting and, and move on. I, I don't know what it is unless there's debt. Uh, this usually isn't happening once there's debt and there's covenants and things like that, then they're, they're like, everyone wants to like wash their hands and, and yeah. move on as quick as possible. Cause they're worried they're, they're going to end up in court. Uh, but the, those are the only situations, and, I, and frankly, I'm surprised because I do see a lot. Uh, I've been approached by quite a few that have raised Series A. They can't raise their Series B. They haven't hit the numbers, you know, these these certain KPIs. And when you say to them, like, well, you know, this company's going to be gone in six months. Like, okay, we'll take it on. But, you know, what do you expect from us from, like, a purchasing? Because this is just going to disappear. Like, you're not even going through the process. Yeah, it's going to zero because they can't even do the process of getting it profitable because, like I said, the incentive of, like, the entrepreneur is, like, well, even if I make this profitable and we get it moving in a certain direction, what are we going to do with this? Like, I, I've got these guys on here with these liquidation preferences, and they have no incentive to liquidate it or to do anything. So it's, it's this weird dynamic that where companies – it, even their IP kind of goes to zero, like everything just kind of disappears, but there were good companies with, you know, good IP under them and it just gets burned out. And I, I, it's one of those weird things in the tech industry that I haven't understood. Like when I, when I worked in retail or in PE, like there was always something you could scratch out of there. Like there, there was always yeah. one last puff of the cigarette that you could take out of there. And in software, I find that people, it's just like, no, 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 we're just going to let it die and, and move on, which is frankly surprising. It's like either we get the, you know, the unicorn hundred X, uh, we get like a decent exit or just let it disappear into the ether. And I, I would like to figure out a way. I mean, I, this is what I'm kind of working on is, is trying to build up these relationships, figure out ways to, to get it done. And I, I know a handful of people that are doing this, uh, successfully, and I haven't figured out the secret sauce yet, but that's what I'm kind of in the process of right now. And especially I'm just focused on like HR as a specific sector. And for me, that's that focus is because I think if we are focused, we'll be able to tell a story to these VCs or to these founders and say, Hey, like, this is a good place for you guys to to land this and let's figure out a way to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, Lanteria. I think you built a, a really nice business and with you know, vertical SaaS, for sure. I mean, in HR, but then you've specialized even further, which I love and yeah. specifically working with Microsoft. So we, I mean, I can't take credit for it. That was the previous owner. So this company was started as a SharePoint uh, shop, basically. Like they were doing custom builds for companies like intranets and things. And they found a, this niche of 
HR, you know, like a, basically like an HR skin on top of SharePoint. And then they kept building it and going deeper and, and turn it into like a pretty robust uh, product. I mean, our, our, one of our best sales guys in Australia says it's, it's a Ferrari for the price of a Fiat. Uh, that's his way of, of kind of pitching it. It's, you know, it's an affordable, very robust product that, you know, is comparable in features to Workday, but you're paying a fraction of the price for, you know, what success factors or Workday would cost. So it's, it's a good business. I love the Microsoft niche. I think Microsoft has, uh, I think we, the last count was it's doubled since 2020, uh, the, the user base for Office 365. Yeah. Um, when we first were like doing due diligence on it and we would go out to talk to investors, they were like, Microsoft, like what? Like, why would you want to get into Microsoft? And now when we talked, we were like, oh, Microsoft, interesting. It's amazing. Like, I, I don't know if it's the AI part or what, but all of a sudden they've, in three years, they've gone to the other end of the spectrum. Now people are like, oh, yes. interesting. And so we're leaning even further into it. like the, the previous owners, they had built it with SharePoint and, and leaned into SharePoint, but we're focused on building it for like the whole Office 365 suite. So we're like focusing a lot on Microsoft Teams, Microsoft Viva, OneDrive, SharePoint Online, making sure this is just a product that it can work for non-Microsoft users. Like that's our objective, but we want to make sure it's the best experience for Microsoft users because that's where our current customer base is. And that's, I think we're in such a competitive market that, trying to go out there fighting these, you know, guys with bazookas of, of money, like high Bob and, and bamboo right. HR, like it's better to say, Hey, we're the best for Microsoft users. And if you right. got Microsoft, come talk to us. And that's good. And you've had success in uh, cross selling and really partnering with Microsoft as well, where they're promoting and, and they really see the value in having a solution like you have along with their tools. Yeah. Yeah, Microsoft is actually really uh, an underrated sort of channel partner for a lot of their partners. Like if you have a good product, they'll demo your product to customers to show them uh, how great Office 365 is or how great Microsoft Teams is. They're like, oh, look at this app, Lanteria, that that integrates. And as long as it kind of like looks like this native experience, they do it. There's um, uh, not a competitor, sort of a complementary LMS product uh, called LMS 365. And they're doing 20 million ARR. Uh, and up until recently, they were basically on-prem SharePoint uh, the LMS. And now they've moved to cloud, but I mean, they've been wow. huge. And it's just a niche inside of a niche inside of Microsoft that sits inside of Microsoft Teams and the people love it. You want to plan together with fellow B2B SaaS founders? And check out today's sponsor, Champion Leadership Group. It's the ultimate resource for SaaS founders and C-suite executives like you to continue to develop themselves, scale their companies, and never walk alone on the journey. We do strategic planning with clients every December, and this year we're opening that up to what is normally a client's-only process, inviting you to. Together, we plan the entire year in just a few hours. And as I said earlier, this was a real game-changer for me when I first learned this. We call it the preloaded year. We do the thinking and planning now, enjoy time off, and maintain our momentum right into the new year so you can fly by competitors. It's free for you since you're listening or watching the podcast. You can learn more about that and how we help SaaS founders build amazing companies and premium exits, if that's what they want. Join us and see what we're all about. Start the new year like you've never have before. For more info, check out championleadership.com. I think it's brilliant. And it's it's where I think a lot of companies get partnership wrong. They'll try and do it and working with, with big companies. And, and you think about a company like Microsoft, just massive. And how could yeah. you get them to sell your stuff? Well, they don't want to sell your stuff. They want to sell more of their stuff. But yeah. when your stuff helps them sell more of their stuff, they're all about that. And so yeah. I think it's really, really smart how you've positioned the, the company and, and continue I mean, the guys before. And then you've continued that on really deepen that partnership and adding value to, to what they're doing so they can sell more of their stuff. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the Microsoft niche, it's not easy. Like this is not, you know, you're not running freemium models here. You're not getting right. the type of customer where they're like, they saw an ad and they come in, they're going to try it your software. This is heavy compliance, a lot of security questions, SOC 2. You need to go through a lot of hoops. I mean, you're running demos to the HR manager, demos to the VP, demos to the IT department. And it, it's not an easy sale, but it's a sticky sale. Once you get in, uh, people, you know, they stick around for a long time. 
they stay happy. You know, the implementation, there's, there's implementation factors, but people are locked in and, and they like it. They, they like the product. They're not leaving Microsoft. I mean, nobody ever leaves Microsoft. <laughs> there's nowhere else to go. So you, you have the people locked in and it's an interesting niche that people, it's not sexy at all. I mean, HR and Microsoft, it, it doesn't get less sexy in, in software probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well profitability and and growth uh, i'll take that over sexy any day yeah yeah yeah, absolutely and that you don't have to fight for me the key is just in marketing and sales like if you get into these big markets where you're dealing with workday that's got like super bowl ads or high bob and bamboo that are running you know linkedin ads constantly you're going in with just a pocket knife and you got to figure out like how you're going to slice and dice and the only way is just having like the deepest niche possible. And we even go deep, like our ICPs are, we dive into like industries that we work a lot in manufacturing, uh, banks, uh, financial institutions, aeronautics companies, uh, conglomerates is kind of like a weird thing. Like if you have a bunch of companies in a bunch of different countries, we have a really interesting offering because we're one of the few products that wouldn't be, you don't have to sign up for, or have a different product in each country you could have ours and be running all those offices under one one roof which very few other softwares are offering that usually you'd have to have like a different siloed product you can have the same high bob product but it would be different in europe it would be different in the us it would be different in india and that that helps us that's really smart finding a niche inside of a niche inside of a niche and then you just <laughs> you go deeper and deeper and deeper and and you found ways to compete where your competitors either aren't or don't serve the market well. So there are yeah. gaps in there that you can solve. I think that's really really smart in in you know being able to to grow a company. Yeah. No, especially there. Microsoft is a big gap. People people yeah. overlook overlook building into like the app source. They they view there's a lot of Slack integrations. There's a lot of things for Salesforce. A lot of things for Google, and it just kind of gets overlooked. I mean, people make fun of Microsoft Teams a lot. <laughs> yeah, they are definitely, I mean, even still, I mean, 800-pound gorilla in the space. There, there was a time where I thought that, you know, maybe they were, their time was done, and, and they have made a huge resurgence in the, the last yeah. few years and really embraced the SaaS model and some pretty innovative things. Copilot. I mean, yeah. That's, that's been a real game changer. Is that something that you've integrated into Lantaria as well? We're working on it. I mean, it's so new, like even yeah. the access for, for developers is so new. So we're looking at ways, I mean, also with HR, I mean, the way we view HR is it's the perfect type of environment where people want to be working just with, you know, basic language. They don't want to be looking at graphs, trying to pull things here and there. So what we're trying to do is inside of like Microsoft Teams, for example, where you'll be using Copilot, you'll be able to talk to, you know, our product, ask it to pull up this, you know, pull up this graph, pull up this information about this employee. Give me this information and be able to sort of visualize it inside of Microsoft. That's our vision for it. But, you know, we have very little access to like what Copilot can actually do and what it will be able to do in the future. I think they're still kind of guarding a lot of that inside or letting, you know, partners that bring them a lot more uh, revenue have have more access to it. Yeah. But I'm hoping that we get to soon because that's that's one of the things that we're super excited about. Very cool. Yeah, I can definitely see how that would benefit in a solution like that. Absolutely. Well, growing a company is is always challenging. And, you know, failure is one of those things that sometimes is seen as a taboo topic. Uh, but but we all have those and we all have the ups and downs. I mean, no journey is, is always up and to the right, no matter, you know, what you read in the magazine. <laughs> so, you know, what has it been like in, in building the company? I mean, have you experienced setbacks? And then how have you bounced back from those? Uh, I think... I mean, for me, one of the most challenging things, like I said, this is kind of a turnaround. We had a strange situation where we have uh, most of the employees when we took over had been with the company eight plus years, like almost all the employees had been there for eight plus years, which in, I mean, as wow. you know, in, in software is like 80 years. It's like yeah. in dog years when <laughs> software. Yeah. So we had this weird thing where they, you know, there was already kind of a close built community of people. Um, you know, we stepped in, there was definitely some standoffish, standoffish behavior. Um, a lot of questioning decisions we were making, you know, 
when a company's been working for so long and providing for these employees for so long, they're wondering why, why do you want to change it? And, you know, you have to explain to them that if a software company is flat in sales, eventually it's going to die. Like you churn a couple of those big customers and you're not adding new ones. That's just going to, that's going to kill you. So the, we had to kind of get people to adjust there and we're, we're still having difficulties there. And then I, I think the challenge that, you know, any founders deal with is, is when you get to certain levels of a company, uh, the people that got you there aren't the people that are going to get you to that next phase. Yeah, exactly. Right. And the owners seem to have optimized more for comfort than for dealing with that difficulty. Uh, there was very little firing, very little turnover. So there were certain people that had gotten them there that they had not turned over. And it was pretty clear to us that some of those people needed to, you know, step out of the way or be moved into other roles. And that's always one of the biggest challenges. Like I have a lot of friends that have started companies and the biggest challenge is when, you know, the original CMO or the original CTO or the original, you know, head of engineering that really was just a person that oversaw like two people, all of a sudden you need five people and they don't really know how to manage that. They don't know how to set goals. They don't know how to delegate. And you try and uh, we've tried to coach some people, but a lot of people we've, we've had to let go and, and make those difficult decisions. And, you know, the first couple are hard because you're really worried, like, wh what is the rest of the team going to think about this when I, I usually what I do if we fired someone is, you know, set up, make a loom video, send it out to our all hands group because we're fully remote. Uh, Cause you don't want them just like disappear into the ether. You want to tell right. people like, Hey, we made this decision for this reason, this reason. And sometimes it's just budget. It's like, Hey, we're on cash crunch right now. And we need to let go of some people. And this person was too expensive So try and be open with people. That's, probably one of the hardest parts. And then just the, for me, I did uh, something called leadership circle. I never ever heard of that. Um, there it's, it's like a 360 review essentially where like investors, partners, uh, employees, uh, peers give you this review. Like it's like a 50 question quiz. And then they give you this circle that kind of shows you like your positioning inside of leadership. And the part on the bottom is your reactionary uh, part. And the part on top is the, the proactive part, the, the good part. You're supposed to be, you know, creative, proactive. And then the part on the bottom is sort of like the reactionary, like the difficult things that you do poorly. But you need to have a balance. You also want to have some of that reactionary part. And my issue was I had a lot of people pleasing. I, I wasn't very good at confrontation. I wasn't very authoritarian. Uh, I Because I don't like being dictated to. So therefore, I don't like to dictate. I like to give people yeah. goals. I like to work with them collaboratively. But I don't like to say, hey, you need to hit this and you need to do it next month or you're, you know, or you're going to be fired or you're going to get demoted or whatever. Because if someone did that to me, I'd be like, screw this guy. I'm out of here. Like I, <laughs> I don't need to deal right, with this. Right. So I, you know, I've been dealing with a lot of that is just in leadership. Like once you hit a certain level as a company, it's not about your sales and marketing knowledge, or it's not about your ability to code. It's about your ability to lead and your ability to sort of deal with difficult, uh, difficult challenges. And so that's been part of my biggest journey is just like learning that. I mean, our, the biggest mistake we made by far is we just didn't raise enough money at the beginning. Like if I could point out like, what was our biggest mistake? There was money that we left on the table because we thought we'll, we'll buy the company. We'll kind of rearrange it, reorganize it. And then we'll go back out to the market with like a new plan and a better multiple or better, a better valuation, let's say, sure. and a growth plan. And the market tanked, uh, we made a mistake and we should have just taken the cash at the time and had a big cushion of cash and been able to operate correctly. And that's been one of their biggest hamstrings so far is just, we, we had to move like into full bootstrapping mode and just trying to get as much revenue out of customers as possible to reinvest it into the business. And that's, that's cost us some time for sure. Yeah, definitely cost time. But if the plan had worked out, then, you know, you'd be feeling really good about not raising as much back then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Would have raised it a much better multiple. I mean, we were acquiring yeah. a company that had mostly Ukrainian employees. The war had just started. So our investors, we had to offer a very good, you know, a very good valuation. And our assumption was, well, once we step in we can reorganize and, and we did do all the thing. I mean, we grew the company 30% with basically no budget. We hired people all over the world. We, you know, brought in pros, uh, in, in various roles, but you know, now in the market, you go out there and they say like, well, it's not an AI product, which is 
basically what a lot of people are throwing money at. <laughs> and even though the valuation's attractive, they're like, eh, I'm, you know, I'm getting my five, six percent leaving in a bank account. And no reason to go risk too high risk on. Yeah. Yeah. So what what are your thoughts about fundraising? Should it be early? Should it be later? Should you, you know, maximize that in the first round because there might not be another? Or, you know, what's your take on that? I think so. I mean, I do think that it's always important to keep your, you know, as much equity or as much, you know, skin on the skin in the game as possible. But I do think that, you know, it's that like bird in the hand kind of thing. It's like if you have the opportunity and that money's there, you should probably take it and not overthink it too much. Like it's always good to have more cash as long as it's not tied to what we were saying before. Like there are issues where, you know, sometimes the incentives in this like VC game is I'm going to give you this money and I expect you to burn it in 18 months. And then I expect you to raise more money and get to that next that next level. When if it's that kind of situation, then it's a little bit more challenging, I think, because if you over raise and overcapitalize your company with the intention of burning all that money, you start just making really poor decisions and yeah. doing things that don't make any sense. Where if there is longer term incentives, you know, we want to see this company, you know, succeed. And there are examples. I have uh, a, a friend of mine here in Barcelona. He sold his company a few years ago. They raised money from Sequoia. They did one round with Sequoia. And they ended up exiting to Zynga for like 300 billion. And Sequoia was really happy. Like they only did one round. They never pushed them. They basically left them alone. They almost thought they were dead at one point. And it ended up being a pretty solid exit. Obviously for Sequoia, this was just a, you know, a blip in the radar, but they made, you know, solid money. But I think there's yeah. too few, it's just not optimized for those types of outcomes, the, the VC structure. Something, I mean, being adaptable and, and you talked about it before, I mean, open to change. I mean, even changing people as you, as you grow, uh, do you have specific strategies that you recommend for entrepreneurs to, to stay agile and flexible in their approach? For me, it's so hard to, you know, create analogous situations to others that are founders. I do think, and, and I've talked to a lot of people, like I said, for them, the biggest challenge is that it's like, this person was loyal to me. This person helped us. This person got me, you know, over the last two years to this level. But at some point, the company just outgrew them or they're just not ready for for that next level. I think, um, like I said, that always consider what you're building like a machine and, and you're always trying to be a well, well-tuned well machine and always make sure that you are not the central piece of that machine is a key piece of anything and that nobody's a central piece, that, that they are you know, replaceable in some sense, whether that's replacing them by moving them over to another section of the business or replacing them sure. by removing them. I think that's always something that should be at top of mind. And I don't think it's, you know, it's discussed in certain circles, but I think oftentimes it's just about, you know, hire the, the next VP or hire the next person that's a little bit higher. Um, I think it's also just about following your gut. Like everyone I know that has fired people or that has, you know, run companies, you know when it's over, like, you know, there's something inside you, you try and keep it going, but you should have just pulled the trigger. Everyone always says like, I should have done this <laughs> when I first felt it. And it's true. Yeah. I, I, I fired someone this week that I should have fired a year ago. And I knew a year ago that I should have fired them. And I didn't. And I kept trying because, because there's also that feeling of they're dead. You also want to see people that are dedicated to the business and they, they want to be there. But sometimes you just know inside and it's you're usually right yeah <laughs> I, I do that exact same thing is, is i don't do it fast enough and it's always in retrospect it's like yeah I knew yeah six months ago and i should have done it then and and i didn't and everyone says that and i, I wonder yeah. if it's like a buy like has there ever been people that we kept around it, it's like we were making a joke the other day because i mean we work in hr so there's the um i forget what it's called the like when an employee gets put on a uh, probation or on, on like yeah, a performance improvement plan, performance improvement plan. That never and I asked someone, has anyone ever come back from a performance improvement plan? <laughs> <clears throat> and this lady told me, yes, like I it was on our podcast and she's like, yeah, we have people all the time. I was like, really? And I was like, why? And she's like, well, sometimes it's because the managers are just bad. Like the managers aren't communicating with their employees. And when HR steps in, I was like, okay. I was like, I would have never, I was like, if someone tells me you're not doing a good job, like the next step is, 
HR's showing up and showing you the door. Right. That makes sense, though. If a if a leader is not leading, if if the employee doesn't know why they're doing what they're doing or what they're supposed to be yeah. doing, how they're supposed to be measured, then then that makes complete sense. And once they understand that, and make a connection, then now they they know what they're supposed to do. They know what success looks like. And it that, it is hard. Like it it depends on the companies too. Like I've I've found for us um, because, like I said, these a lot of people have been in the same company for most of their career. A lot of people don't know what great or good looks like. Like you just said, yes. like, what does yeah, good look exactly like? Right. And I, whether it's because we're remote or like my own way of doing things, I like people that have like agency and ownership and kind of like push themselves a lot of times. And I find it difficult um, without bringing like external people in. Like I, oftentimes I've brought people in like externally and said like, hey, can you help me show our team sort of what is like a good, uh, you know, metrics dashboard look like, or how can they pull this all together? And they bring it in and they show it, but, you know, I've, I, I've seen that, you know, the team still doesn't figure out how to actually execute it and without you like kind of holding their hand through it. But I think the only way is really good hires, like installing people uh, into the ranks that sort of bring that like, Hey, this is what great looks like. This is what it should look like. And then is that's when you really see like the people that that gut feeling starts to show up. Like I brought this guy in, he's, or this woman and and she's doing this and she's showing like what great looks like. And this person's clearly not getting it. And then your gut starts to say like, okay, maybe they're just not, they're not here for the, not here for this. We need to find someone else. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've had great success, multiple companies uh, on your journey. You know, what would you say to those who, who maybe doubt their ability to to make a difference or leaving a, a lasting impact um, over time? I would say it, it's always really hard. Like I, I still have like a lot of, uh, you know, just you feel like an imposter. You always have imposter syndrome, always. no matter what. Yeah. Always. I one of the things I actually did during the pandemic, I, I didn't use Twitter ever before. And I started using Twitter to write things that I did because I felt like we had sold our company and I was like, I didn't do any, like, I didn't feel successful about it. I didn't feel like I really had learned anything along the journey. I was like, what did I get out of this? And so I started writing things that we did, even just weird things like experiences that we had and you put it all together and you're like, wow, there's like a whole puzzle here. And there's something that you actually learned because then when you talk to people that haven't done it and they're at zero and you're at, you know, two, you're like, oh, well, yeah, just because sometimes it's just like intuitive. You're like, well, this is how you do it. And they're like, well, why'd you do that? And you're like, I don't know. Like that, that's just what worked. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it, you know, always get that feeling that, you know, there's always somebody that's going to be ahead of you and there's always someone that's going to be behind you. And you just kind of like pay attention to your own journey. And uh, I think I said before, like to just be curious and be resilient are the two things. Like if you don't think you're going to be able to sort of like handle those difficult moments, I wouldn't get into it. Like, I think if you want, I mean, I think W2 or employee work is, is totally a great outcome for people. And I think being an entrepreneur is uh, oftentimes like a psychotic journey that people probably don't need to yeah. put themselves through. Um, but I think that curiosity too, is like one of the keys. You, you just have to, you have to want to like learn about different industries, different things, even just the minutia of the things that you're doing and be interesting because that initial sort of excitement is going to wear off. Uh, you know, that like, oh, we did it. We closed the deal or we got this partnership or those highs are going to wear off. Those lows are going to wear off. And you always have to figure out a way to like kind of keep pushing yourself forward and just stay even keel inside of that. Like make sure that you don't ride those waves too hard. And I think a lot of people do ride them a little bit too hard and that, you know, mm -hmm. it, it makes it so for them, those that first step into being an entrepreneur, it's like, it's too hard for them because they, they, they get too emotional up and down. And the key is just, just another day. Keep there's, there's a good book called uh, chop wood, carry water that, yes. uh, that, that I read that, that kind of just watches. It. It's like, just keep doing the things day to day and enjoy them. Because when you get to that like exit or, or sort of whatever the end state is, you want to be able to look back and say like, Oh, that was, that was actually cool. I actually learned something and take those learnings. But I think, you know, some people get stuck in, in that first gear and they, they can't figure out how to get out of it. And yeah. just everyone's been there. Yes. Yes. 
That's great, great advice. Well, where can people learn more about you and about Lanteria online? So Lanteria, uh, feel free to take a look at Lanteria.com, L-A-N-T-E-R-I-A.com. <clears throat> Me uh, on LinkedIn, Andrew Swiler, S-W-I-L-E-R, or on Twitter uh, as well, S-W-I-L-E-R-A. So Swiler A is, is my handle on Twitter. And that's pretty much all my footprint on the internet. I don't, I don't venture into Instagram or Facebook other than to look and see what like my mom is posting on there. <laughs> that's pretty much it. Sounds good. We'll make sure and link all of that in the show notes. And it has been a great conversation. Thank you for being on SAS Fuel. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Thanks again, Andrew, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and insights. It's a great company, fantastic solution, and solid info. I just love it. Well, you can learn more about Andrew at Lantaria.net and connect with him on social as well. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. And remember our YouTube channel, full episodes, shorts, SAS training, two weekly videos with actionable tips and encouragement, and yes, a few outtakes on there as well because I mess up a lot and funny things happen when you film outside and in public places. But wherever you are, please subscribe and follow the show. And everyone who subscribes this week gets free access to AI Santa's Helper. Just input the interest of your loved ones and it generates the most thoughtful gift ideas. Just a little warning, may occasionally suggest a jetpack for your grandma. So we're still working out a few bugs there. Join us Thursday on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series where my guest is a virtual CMO and go-to-market builder, Mark Donegan. We'll take a deeper dive into B2B SaaS marketing and what will work in 2024. I bet we could put that in our planning session. And next Tuesday, we have founder Adam Robinson, founder and CEO of Retention.com. Adam's previous company sold for eight figures to private equity and Retention.com has grown to 20 million ARR in under three years. Great insights next week. So I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Let's go!